Hello everyone, just before we start, uh, just to say about 20 minutes in, there's a slight technical glitch, mea culpa, it only lasts for a few seconds, so please bear with us and uh, keep listening. Thanks. Okay, greetings everybody. Uh, welcome to our Chicken in Every Pot podcast. Uh, welcome to our Chicken in Every Pot podcast. This is our 12th session, actually, so happy one-year anniversary to us. Um, and on this um, auspicious occasion, we are delighted to welcome today's guest, who is Professor Angie Wilson, who's coming to us from the Politics Department at the University of Manchester. Um, I'll just say a quick, a quick couple of sentences about Angie's uh, research interest and forthcoming publication, and then we, we, we'll uh, open up our conversation. Um, before I do, I should just hand over to my esteemed colleague for a moment. Hello. Hi, Clara. Hi, Angie. It's Alex here from uh, University of Leicester. Um, Clara, do you want to tell us a little bit about Angie and what we're going to talk about today? Yeah, absolutely. So today we are going to talk we're going to talk about a lot of things because uh, Angie's research area explores or includes at least uh, the intersections of social conservatism in the US, Christianity, feminist political theory and policies regulating sexuality. So I'm not sure how we're going to get to much of that in 45 minutes, but we will do our best. So welcome, Professor Wilson. Um, I'm not going to go through your back catalogue because I don't want to spend time um, uh, speaking about that. But if I could just mention um, Angie's forthcoming publication in 2024, um, because this will be uh, hopefully something that you'll come back and talk to us about again uh, in the future. It's entitled The Politics of Hate, and it focuses on the Christian right rights political strategy of the past 50 years. So Angie, if we could just kind of have a, a bit of an introductory few thoughts from yourself on how did you get to, you know, this this series of kind of fascinating uh, topics? We, we'd love to know how, how did you land here, I suppose? Okay, thank you very much, uh, Alex and Clota, and happy, happy birthday to the podcast. Um, that's great. Uh, uh, so how did I come to this? Well, um, I came to this topic not as a normal academic that would just um, uh, decide uh, what their next research project is. I was kind of born into this topic. Uh, my father was a social justice Methodist preacher in the Texas Panhandle, and I grew up in the Methodist Church and then uh, became a lay pastor myself. Um, I went to a, a, a Methodist uh, undergraduate uh, university, and um, so, you know, uh, I then had a, a, a Rotary International Fellowship to come to the UK to study for one year. And one of the uh, pieces of advice that the Rotarians gave us when we came to, uh, to this country, well, there were two pieces of advice. One was that women should never order a pint at the pub. And that was unladylike. Um, and the second piece of advice was never talk about religion and politics. And given that my MA was going to be in politics and my background in religion, I found that rather difficult. So um, my research has always been at that intersection, looking at how those uh, those two topics intertwine and, and uh, uh, influence one another. So uh, looking at ways in which values inform politics and ways in which uh, Christian elite or religious elite um, are involved and and uh, directing uh, politics has been uh, a theme throughout my career. Has it been? I, I mean, I guess in the sense if we do talk mostly about U.S. politics on this podcast, is 
have you looked just quickly though actually Andy have you is, is the US the sort of main focus of your work and your research and your interest have you looked at sort of impact of religion elsewhere as well in, in political life um I had a, I yes I have uh, done a comparative European piece that looked at mostly focused on uh, comparative uh, welfare policy in Western mm-hmm. Europe that looked at the way in which religious religious values influence um, uh, broadly speaking welfare values and in that in that particular book I was looking at concentrating on um, the politics uh, sorry the ethic of care and the political economy of care and how each uh, I think there are about six uh, European countries that I compared around um, their uh, political economy of care how they care for either elderly people or young people and then what that tells us about um, the interplay between values and politics and that that piece was entitled um, why Europe is lesbian and gay friendly and why America never will be um, and the, the general uh, argument there is that it has something to do with a state's relationship to welfare and values okay um, well maybe put a pin in that and come back to it. I guess the reason that <laughs> Think about that quite, I mean, in the sense of maybe the title of that piece answers the next question, but in, is, is the role of religion in US politics a case for American exceptionalism then, in that sense of, not exactly exceptional perhaps, but different than the European experience for sure? Um, I think in every country, religious leaders are in conversation with um, with government leaders, and maybe that is exactly how it should be. We want our government leaders to be uh, reflecting the values of, of the people that they govern. And, um, but Americans, uh, America's intersection with religion and politics is different simply because, uh, at least some people seem to think that there is a separation of church and state in the, in the U.S. and that that's somehow in the Constitution. That, of course, is not in the Constitution. What the Constitution says is that we won't have uh, an established religion. And it's about an establishment clause, not necessarily that the religion, religious leaders and political leaders won't be in conversation with one another. And um, so America, I think the expectations of American uh, political life that there's going to be some sort of a wall between the church and state um, is there. So that that is that perhaps makes America exceptional and that people expect that wall to be there. Um, but it's not exceptional in the sense that, you know, of course, those leaders have conversations with one another. Yeah, that's great. Thanks. I've, I've, I've maybe concentrated on the US rather than going down the rabbit hole of the real. Absolutely. <laughs> yeah, Today, state and religion. Say, yeah. Yeah, in Britain or France or wherever. Um, Claude, do you, do you want to pick up on the sort of, not exactly the historical aspect of it, but just the sort of origins, I guess, of recent. Of yeah, religion I, in I recent think, times? Well, I suppose where I was coming from with, with, with these couple of questions was when, when, when I was preparing for the podcast and, and, and reading round, um, Angie's topic, um, I was reminded that when I started, um, you know, teaching this, uh, 20 years ago, whatever, I remember at the time reading and never getting my head properly around the idea that when Roe versus Wade happened in in 1973, that obviously, you know, uh, Catholics had very strong uh, views about abortion, as, as they would have done in, in Ireland, uh, you know, at the same time um, where, where, where I am now. Um, 
But it was some years, like more like late 1970s, by the time um, evangelicals kind of arrived at the abortion table, if that's how I might put it. And, and I wondered if, if you have thoughts or, or um, uh, opinions on how and why or how, how or why did the evangelicals get to that abortion issue alongside Catholics? Because it would have seemed to me that often these, these two strands of Christianity would not be lining up about much, really. Um, okay, if I promise to answer your question, can I meander for a moment slightly? Absolutely. <laughs> meander as much as you like. Yeah. As um, much as you like. And I, and I don't want to, to imply that I'm a theologian either, uh, but I think just to have a little moment of background gives us, uh, gives us something to work with. So these categories of the Christian right, of evangelicals, of, uh, um, of uh, religious right, um, can be uh, a bit deceiving. So, um, first of all, let's kind of unpick the categories, if you don't mind. In my own work, I use the word Christian right to uh, when I'm talking about U.S. politics, when we're talking about the international influence of American Christian right, then I tend to use the phrase of the religious right because they will work uh, in collaboration with other religious groups when they're doing that on an international front. That I'm going to set aside for the minute. But even amongst that uh, that umbrella term, the Christian right, there are, of course, endless amounts of denominations and interpretations of theology. But under that the umbrella of the Christian right is, of course, the Catholics and the Catholic right, let's say, and um, uh, the evangelical right. But even even in that evangelism kind of umbrella, smaller umbrella, um, are a lot of people that think each other is going to hell. Uh, because of their different understandings of theology. Um, so you have, for example, and this is just one distinction, and I'm gonna, it's important because I'll come back to it in a minute because it does kind of explain a little bit about where we're at at the moment. So you have um, premillennialist and postmillennialist, and all that means is a difference between theological interpretations of when they think Christ is going to return. So when they think Christ is going to return uh, to uh, to the um, uh, to the earth and take believers back to heaven. So for premillennialists, um, they think that Jesus will return and there'll be a thousand years of peace and then there'll be uh, the great uh, tribulation and some people will go to heaven and some people will go to hell. And in that group, we have fundamentalists and Pentecostals. And um, fundamentalists tend to be, um, uh, uh, we tend to think of them as, as uh, that they, well, they do think of the Bible as a literal translation of the word of God. Uh, Pentecostals differentiate themselves from fundamentalists because they believe in the gifts of the Holy Spirit. And uh, to give you some names to kind of put with that, uh, Pentecostalists would be the Pat Robertsons or the Sarah Palins. Um, of, uh, of uh, politics. So it was thought that the fundamentalists uh, were uh, the ones behind the kind of Scopes monkey trial in the 1920s around um, evolution and arguing that evolution didn't exist. And that after they were, after they lost the Scopes monkey trial, that they then pulled away from politics and decided, no, 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 right, politics isn't for us. We're just going to wait until Christ comes back. So, so we're going to take ourselves away from politics. 
Um, uh, and so the assumption was that at, from between 1920 and uh, Roe v. Wade, that actually the Christian right, if you want to use that phrase, stepped back from politics. That was absolutely not the case. They were very much involved in prohibition. They were very much involved in the anti-communist movement in the 1930s and 40s. And you see that kind of legacy with Pat Robertson's, with the, Hal Lindsey's kind of late great planet Earth, with even with Billy Graham, who in 1947 was pulling 6,000 people into his, um, into his revival uh, tent uh, movement. So that's a, one little background of the premillennialist. Now, I just want to just give you a quick background of what a postmillennialist is. And they mean that there is going to be a thousand years of peace on earth before Christ comes back. So in order to, now this is important, in order to get Christ to come back, you have to have peace on earth. You have to reconstruct the earth, the governance structures in earth, to reflect what God wants them to be. And these are the reconstructionists, the, the Rush Doonies of this world. Um, who believe that in order to get Christ to come back, you have to reconstruct the nation as a Christian nation. So um, Rush Dooney is, and his teachings were endorsed by Jerry Falwell, by Ralph Reed, by um, uh, uh, Rush Dooney's son-in-law, Gary North, uh, influences Ron Paul's um, uh, libertarianism. So I, I say all of that because it's these two groups that are working together under the label of the Christian right, um, and you begin then to be able to unpick current phrases that are used by this group. So things like they want to impose a biblical worldview. Well, why would you have a biblical worldview that starts to look a lot like a political ideology when we think about reconstruction? And that's where you get kind of and we'll talk about a little bit later, maybe when we're talking about kind of what's happened in American politics uh, with 2000 after 2016. But you begin to get the, the rise of kind of Christian nationalism. So to go back to actually answer the question that you asked, sorry, it was a little meandering there, but I wanted a, a little backstory. So what happens is we get to the kind of 1960s and um, according to some, I don't know, I wasn't born, but the world starts falling apart. Right. You have the women's movement. You have the uh, gay movement at the time. You have um, uh, very much following after that kind of Vietnam and 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 people socially and politically being in, in unrest. And so amongst that, you get um, you get people that are concerned about what that social change is going to mean for American society. Um, and that would include um folks like uh, James Dobson, who's a, a child psychologist uh, initially, and uh, he sets up a uh, focus on the family um, uh, later on. But his, his child psychology is about, wait a minute, let's, um, we need to, to, to stop this social unrest of the 19, 1960s and 1970s. In the early 1970s, you get Phyllis Schlafly's The Eagle Forum being set up against the ERA movement. Um, some would say uh, Phyllis Schlafly single-handedly defeated the, the ERA movement, um, the ERA amendment. Uh, in the 70s, you get uh, folks like Anita Bryant in Florida working against uh, 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 gay-friendly legislation. 
Um, you get pastors in the South like Don Waldman, who sets up the American Family Association in the 1970s. And he's just a local pastor who's really concerned about what he's seeing on television. You know, but in the 1970s, American sitcoms, suddenly you have a gay character. Suddenly you have all of these, you know, mod and women's lib being on. And he's worried about that and that impact that it has on on his um, on his congregation. And he gets his claim to fame by asking his congregation to turn off the television and to begin to boycott um, all of these uh, commercials uh, that are supporting these sitcoms. And so there is a there is a particular moment in history and Roe versus Wade comes into that. And so Roe versus Wade is, uh, is one element amongst the whole host of anxieties around social change. And then in the early 70s, the, the thing that really shifted uh, around Roe versus Wade was theologian Francis Schaeffer. And Francis Schaeffer uh, says, you know, we don't need to be allies with the Catholic Church. The Catholics and the Protestant do not need to be allies because allies assume that we're friends and that we're theologically in tune with one another. We're not going to be allies, but we do need to be co-belligerents. And it's this word co-belligerent. So we can have on any particular issue, we can work on a single issue together, even if, and this is my phrase, not his phrase, we think each other's going to hell. Right. So even if all of these people under this umbrella think each other's going to hell on a particular issue, we can work together. And you see this on Roe versus Wade, but you also see it on uh, in the 1970s around uh, the anti-pornography uh, debates where uh, the Christian right are working with feminist movements and radical feminist movements that want to 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 stop uh, uh, porn being easily available. Mm-hmm. So that's a very long winded answer to your question, Claude. I'm sorry, but I'm just giving a quick run that's through great. this. And why it's great. I, I, I don't have together. enough pieces of paper for all the notes. <laughs> this, is, this is fantastic. And, and just. It helps to make sense of so many things. I mean, my my main takeaway just at the end of that really is 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 a version of my enemy's enemy is my friend, I suppose. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So, yeah, absolutely, okay. absolutely. And um, and you also have, you know, by the time you get to the late seventies, you have some some really influential political operatives uh, working and seeing the potential of this Christian right movement. Keep in mind, in 1970s America, you've got televangelism taking off. You've got, um, you know, people moving from the kind of Graham uh, version of of getting folks under a tent uh, to to this mass televangelical movement happening. And you've got political operatives like uh, Paul Ryrick and Richard Verge and even uh, um, Joseph Coors, uh, from the Coors Brewing Company uh, that that ends up funding quite a few of these uh, initial movements like the Moral Majority and bringing those folks together as a political movement to influence the Republican Party. Just picking up on that and, and in a way just to reduce that complex and fascinating story to crude basics. Um, I guess if, if, you know, when I supervise student dissertations and they want to look at the role of religion in US <laughs> politics, they'll, they'll always come at it from the, the perspective of the Christian right, or the, not always actually, but mostly come at it, you know, for the, the Christian right. When did, 
So when did this become, I mean, in the sense of, you, you can see from the story you've just told us how it's edging, it, the politi- where the political impetus is going to go. How does it become, though, so partisan? Is it accurate to date that to Reagan and 1980 and 1981? Well, certainly by the, by the late 70s. I I was talking about um, uh, how disappointed they were with Jimmy Carter and Mm -hmm. so Reagan goes and courts them and they start then this long relationship with the Republican Party and they are um, uh, all in and are going nowhere. Uh, They are somewhere between 60 and 70 percent of the Republican Party would identify as um, as part of the Christian right. Uh, Pat Robertson, of course, has a, a runs as a Republican candidate in 1988 with his Christian coalition, um, the kind of next thing that takes over after the moral majority. Um, but they're um, they are very much all in with uh, with the Republican Party and will continue to drive um, to drive not just the Republican Party agenda, but more importantly for the Republican Party. And we may come to this later on. They are the ground troops. For getting out the vote. Yeah, I, I don't want to get too in the weeds about this. I'm not sure it's that important, but just so it, it wasn't in the sense of it was as much um, re- people reaching out to the Republicans as, as vice versa, because I guess the story's told in party politics terms as Reagan sort of the, 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 uh, the initial. Negotiation isn't the right word at all, but um, the sort of it was the it was the Reagan Republicans who reached out to the religious groups. But you're suggesting that it was as much the other way around as 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 uh, as the sort of explicit reach out from 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 Reagan and other Republicans. Is that a fair assessment? I think or? I think it I think it was a mutual uh, a, a friendship, a mutual benefit. Um, they they certainly historically found themselves well certainly post Nixon um, yeah. uh, more in line with Republican ideology and uh, and after Reagan that just continued to build. Yeah, and there's never been any need to question that since. No, that's fine. Just uh, in terms of I I, I guess we want to come on to think about uh, more recent events, but just for example in terms of. of Republican, in terms of thinking about Republican leaders who've had to sort of backtrack a little bit from some of their previous positions, and by that particularly, I guess Republicans have taken pro-life uh, positions in, in in their previous political existence. George Bush Senior, to some extent, certainly Mitt Romney, and obviously Trump. Is that something which ever causes consternation within sort of the ranks of the? Is it something you know, it's uh, accepted at face value as a, a genuine, I don't want to use the word conversion, I can't think of a better way of phrasing <clears> it at the moment. Well, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God and yeah. all can be forgiven. So um, so that works in politics as well. So um, if, uh, if someone, you know, has voted in the past in a way that, that maybe um, uh, doesn't align with Christian right views. That doesn't mean that they don't understand the political realities that they need to uh, uh, court this particular group. 
um, in order to be elected. Um, one of uh, Bush Sr. and Bush Jr. were both uh, successful at that. Uh, Mitt Romney obviously was not successful at that. And, uh, and in fact, I do part of the research I do is participant observation. And um, Mitt Romney came to speak at a, a group called Values Voters, which is uh, run every year by the Family Research Council and other and other groups sponsored as well. And met and anyone who's a uh, up and coming re, uh, leader of the republic in the Republican Party must court the the values voters constituents. And uh, when Mitt Romney spoke, not the not the person that introduced him, but the person that spoke just before the person that introduced him. Um, uh, said that he was concerned about Mitt Romney's um, candidacy uh, because he believed that um, uh, all Mormons were, uh, that Mormonism was a cult. Now, mm. when you're talking to a group of three or 4,000 people and you're priming them to understand Mormonism as a cult and then the next candidate coming out is Mitt Romney, um, you're pretty much directing your constituents about what you think about this person. And so the the signals were there about Romney, that they didn't trust him, that they, they were not excited about him. And what happened is not that they voted for the other candidate, but it's just that they didn't get out and vote. Yeah, I, I must admit, I was amongst those who early 2012 um, didn't think Romney could win the nomination uh, because of his Mormon background, obviously. Shows what I know. Um. <laughs> Do you know who's who's springing to mind in, in this conversation, though? If if Mitt Romney was not going to be the man, and obviously, like uh, you know, in Obama times, there would have been a, a kind of a, a a need for some kind of significant ca- counterpart or counterpoint. Um, would Newt Gingrich have have been a a, a person of of interest um, or relevance to the religious oh, right at, at that know. point in time? You know, you know, Newt wanted to be president so bad that you could taste it, <laughs> that you could taste it. He he absolutely <clears throat> and and Newt and his, I believe now third wife, um, produces a number of videos uh, for the the, produ- the uh, production company Citizens United about uh, how God is so much a part of the American history, and uh, and he's he's you know made himself a good post-congressional kind of um, uh, career there, uh, supporting the Christian right in various ways in uh, publications and, and uh, movies and things. Uh, but he definitely wanted it very bad. Um, I don't think that... Um, I Yeah, I, I, I just don't think they liked him very much. <laughs> I think they liked his power when he was uh, running the, the, the house, but I just don't think they mm-hmm. liked him very much. And uh, and his his uh, shall we say relationships uh, at the time they they found a hard time um, with uh, some of his own personal morals uh, around his relationships. I believe I understand um, uh, he uh, was divorced a couple of times. The second time, uh, having an affair while his wife was dying of cancer, uh, was in the hospital dying of cancer. So I think they they had some moral questions about about Newt Gingrich. But they love Sarah Palin. They love Michelle Bachman. They're never going to vote for a woman, but they love them. Um, they, uh, or at the time, they wouldn't vote for a woman. Uh, and they love Ted Cruz. Ted yeah. Cruz was their guy. And I am 
I, you know, would go out on a limb here to say, I think one day Ted Cruz will still be their guy. Okay, that's a day to look forward to. Um, yeah, really. Um, also, just interesting that um, they seem to have gotten over their concerns about a, a thrice married candidate who has a penchant for affairs. So maybe maybe that's a moment to draw in the Christian right or the religious right support for Trump, despite the fact that he is not one of them or wasn't. Yeah. So, yeah. So it's, you know, uh, uh, I, I said that Reagan went and was one of the first to go and talk to uh, the, the religious right leaders, uh, right leaders and say, you know, I, I don't believe like you, but I understand that your, your power within the within the party and and I want to, to do things for you. And every single Republican candidate had that same conversation. And with every candidate, the the Christian right would elite would turn up with a list, a wish list of things that they wanted. And and then they would get the the person would get elected and they might fulfill one or two things on Mm -hmm. that list. Um, uh, But then they would do something that would go off off the agenda. And then the Christian right would be a bit um, dismayed with them. Uh, for George Bush Jr., for example, um, they didn't agree with his uh, immigration uh, uh, and his uh, and he wanted amnesty for uh, mm-hmm. some of the Mexican immigrants. So there were moments where they then went off them. Now, what Trump did and and when you know Trump and when you know the Christian right, you understand why they they get, get on so well. What Trump did was he said, right, you know, tell me what it is that you want. And he met with 200 Christian right leaders and they gave him a wish list. And he said, okay, um, you know, he, he has actually written the book, The Art of the Deal. So he gets what deals are like. And he made a deal with them and they delivered. And you know what? Unlike every other uh, Republican candidate that's been elected president, he when he was elected president, he delivered for them. So he gave them the Supreme Court justices. He gave them over 200 federal court justices um, he put Betsy DeVos, who is uh, the DeVos and Prince family, uh, financially underwrite the Family Research Council and many other groups. He put uh, Betsy DeVos as secretary of education, who doesn't believe in public, uh, the public school system and believes we should have homeschooling or, or religious schools. Mm-hmm. Um, he put uh, 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 Tony Perkins as um, uh chair of the International Religious Committee on Religious Freedom, something like that. I'm sure I've got the name of that particular committee wrong. Um, uh, And he gave them everything that they wanted. Um, And so much so that by the by the 2020 campaign, uh, both Ralph Reed and Tony Perkins as chair of the Family Research Council, uh, Ralph Reed, that was uh, a part of Pat Robertson's moral majority and now runs a, a group called Faith and Freedom. Both of them said that Trump was the most Christian president America has ever had. Yeah, that's it. That's an interesting way of framing religiosity, I guess, and, and, and belief systems. But it's but, I, it, but you, there is a yeah, I guess Trump's often described as a transactional president, but it, it's, it's transactional can go both ways, I guess, in in, uh, in that sense. And uh, that, there's a logic to it, at least in terms of, 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 of things being delivered. Just quickly, I, 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 just something that caught 
caught my ear from when you were saying, talking earlier, I guess, because, uh, again, it's one of the features, I think, of, of in the UK of an understanding of, of the issues that agitate um, uh, 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 Again, to to to, to oversimplify uh, the, the the Christian right, we, you know, the focus would be on abortion and, and previously perhaps on on definitely previously on same sex marriage. But you mentioned immigration a few minutes ago as being a, a, a point of contention in in George W. Bush's presidency. Um, that's not a, an issue, I guess. Certainly, some of our listeners would think of as being one which would motivate. Uh, the Christian right. There are issues such as immigration, which not exactly go under the radar, but which which aren't as um, aren't as obvious culture war issues, for want of a better phrase, uh, which which mobilise uh, people on the Christian right. Um, sorry, did you say what are the other issues? Yeah, all other issues like apart from immigration. Yeah, well, well, yeah, particularly why immigration, and okay. are there other sort of issues which are I. I not not as obviously on the, the radar uh, as abortion and same-sex rights. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so so uh, on on immigration, um, as I mentioned, uh, the the Christian right have this deep tap root into uh, the culture of the South. Uh, many of the supporters and certainly many of the religious leaders have connections or or uh, are located in the South or have their ideological roots in the South. Um, uh, I am not by any means convinced that every re- Christian right religious believer is a racist, and I am absolutely not saying that. But uh, while I, what I will say is the political elites know that there are certain buttons, on, on any side, know there are certain buttons that they can push to motivate voters. And uh, political elites on the, on the religious right are, or the Christian right are concerned about immigration, possibly because many of them live in the South where there is a significant number of, of people coming over the border and they're concerned about that. Uh, uh, and possibly because uh, they are concerned about shifting demographics. And uh, the producers, uh, so, so there was a, a film produced not long ago, well, during the, the Romney campaign uh, called The Demographic Winter. And uh, by Christian right leaders. And this is a particular mm-hmm. concern of theirs about the, the, the fact that America in 20 years time is going to be a white minority. And uh, so you get a, a, an articulated concern about what that means um, and a demographic winter, meaning that, uh, you know, to quote them, um, white people are not having enough babies. And uh, and so out of that, you get things like the Quiverful movement, which I will let people Google uh, themselves. But I, uh, the outcome of which, shall we say, is have as, uh, for white people to have as many babies as possible. Mm-hmm. So you remember the, the show, was it 12 children and counting or 13 children mm-hmm. counting about the Duger family? So the Duger family were, were featured highly by the Family Research Council's value mm-hmm. values voters. Um, uh, events. And so it is a concern about that demographic shift and when that's going to happen. So that's one issue. Another issue is around education. Yeah. Um, and uh, and again, a, a similar concern going back to the 60s about what's this social change mean and um, and and how do we control it? How do we slow it down? Um, how do we make sure uh, for those that are reconstructionists? 
How do we make sure that we bring on this thousand years of peace where uh, America has a, a Christian is, is definitely a Christian nation and everyone is on the same page? And in order to do that, you need to educate children in a particular way. And, you know, uh, if you're a political elite, um, if you can uh, educate your voters early and get them moving in your direction, that's not a bad thing either. Yeah. Okay, but just sticking on the, the the education question, we can overstate it, but homeschooling has been uh, on the rise. And you mentioned Betsy DeVos as, as Trump's education secretary and her scepticism about the role of um, the public schools. And again, just for any of our UK listeners, public schools in the US are what they sound like they are, uh, not <laughs> what public schools are in the UK, which is not what they sound like they are. Um, just... On on that theme, is that a is the promotion of homeschooling? Is that a how aggressively promoted is that? If that makes sense as a question. Okay, so so from the nineteen seventies onwards, this concern about social change and the change in social values meant that many of them were worried about what was going on, what was being taught in public schools. And at least since that time, they've been uh, against the national curriculum. Um, so they are. Uh, and part of that feeds into the ton of general anti-federalism that America has uh, and not wanting the federal government or even necessarily the state government telling local schools what they should be teaching. So we're already on a kind of playing field of questioning public schools and, and what what that actually actually means. So there's been two ways recently that 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 has kind of come out in Christian right uh, politics. Um, one of those is around homeschooling, which I'll speak to. And then in a minute, maybe we can come back to their um, uh, their political activism around school boards and uh, getting involved in, in local education. Um, so in terms of homeschooling, uh, you know, homeschooling in the U.S. and also, I might add, in the U.K., is virtually unregulated. Mm-hmm. It is unregulated schooling, and yeah. and I find that really frightening. But um, that it is it is you can take your child out of school in the U.S. or in the U.K. and uh, and make a case for schooling them at home in whatever way that you want to, and it doesn't necessarily have to to comply to national curriculum. Now, if you are concerned that the public school system is going to teach your children values that you don't think that they should learn, then maybe that's a reason to to school them at home. And or if Christian schools that are available in your number one are available in your area, if they are available, they may be they're private, so they may be more expensive. So you may not be able to afford that, but you could afford maybe homeschooling. Especially, let's say, if you have a, a relationship where the man is at working and the woman is at home raising children. So um, so the wife at home can then can then uh, uh, take care of, of making sure the children know what they need to know. Um, they tend to support voucher programs so that uh, what that equate, you know, a school has 200 students. They get X amount from the government. Um, so they say, right, so each school gets uh, each child 
uh, is equated with a, a particular number. It costs so much to, to educate each child. So that money should follow the child. And if we take that child out of the public school, then the public should continue to give us a voucher for that kid so that we can mm-hmm. take them to a private school, ideally a Christian school. And so they support that that kind of voucher programs. Um, uh, but the, the chief concern is about the curriculum and what's being taught in the public mm-hmm. schools. Don't like, and that that's like I say, it has a 50, 60, 70 year taproot in the Christian right is a worry about public schools. And yeah, homeschooling has gone um, uh, through the roof in America, particularly after COVID, but even before that it was rising. Um, millions of kids now are schooled at home and there is an enormous industry in publishing homeschooling support um, uh, uh, educational material. Um, not just kind of on, and of course now classes that are Zoom and online for homeschooling, mm-hmm. Uh, but the Christian rights uh, publication industry is doing very well out of uh, publishing educational material for homeschool taught students. And there's a whole homeschooling movement where you you meet up and you have a homeschooling soccer team, um, you know, and homeschooling events so that the kids don't miss out on the kind of social aspect of that. But it, the socializing is with uh, uh, families of like mind. Yeah, it's pretty one-dimensional socialising, I guess, at least in terms of the values, etc. And, and I, again, not something you can explain in depth, but even within the sort of public school system, there's bones of contention. The you know, what parents having a greater say in what should be taught in schools is, is, is you know, raised its head, particularly actually in state-level elections, the Virginia gubernatorial election. This was a big issue, and Yunkin was was one of his stronger issues. Absolutely, which all sounds. Very reasonable, but it's actually a little bit more. Because it sounds reasonable, parents should have input, but it's more questionable. But let's not let's leave that. Uh, I, I, I don't know. I, you, you, you do want to say something? I just yeah, I just want to say a couple of things. One of the things that the Christian right lead have been incredibly good at is training local activists on how to get involved in your local school and how to influence your local school board. So how to make sure that. Um, they don't teach critical race theory, that they don't teach, in their words, transgender ideology, that uh, they provide, um, uh, that they don't teach evolution, that they don't teach climate change, um, and all of these kind of things that they think are are irrelevant and not important and not in their biblical worldview. Yeah, I mean, that, Claude is waving at me that we're running out of time, and I, I do want to get quickly to... Uh, just to change track a little bit, quick go back to Trump and and and, and his presidency, and, and I guess that we we haven't got time now to, to to think too much about current issues around uh, reproductive rights and the politics of reproductive rights and the the, the backlash in a sense that there's been against the Dobbs decision, at least whenever there's been a, a when voters have been given a direct choice on whether to expand or restrict. Uh, reproductive rights, they've always come down so far, at least, on the expand or maintain the status quo, or protect uh, the status quo as much as that's possible. Um, you, I, I, the one, when the Dobbs decision was made, one of the... the, the um, which was significant enough in itself, clearly, hugely significant in itself, but in terms of it did make others 
people worry about, you know, overturning other Supreme Court precedent. Uh, and I guess, in, in particularly uh, the Obergefell decision and the the, the right to, to same-sex marriage. Um, do you, is, do you, two questions, I've bundled two things together quickly. Is, one, do you think that's a, a, a legitimate fear? Are there groups who are agitating, uh, you know, to, trying to, to, to get... Um, question same, the right to same-sex marriage. Is that something which is bubbling up uh, currently below the national level but might be entering the legal system soon? And two, one of the things, I think, and to jump around a bit here, is Trump, of course, in 2016 presented himself as a relatively same-sex friendly Republican. You know, he... he um, uh, how does that play? And, and does the... the and as, oh, careful how I phrase this, but the issues around trans rights now, is that, is that sort of, not exactly superseded same-sex rights, but is that something where you, where you can agree with Trump, uh, if that makes sense from, a, from the point of view of the Christian right? I'm not sure that I've bundled too many things together there <laughs> to tackle coherently, but I just wanted to throw them in the mix quickly. Um, my research looks at the political strategy of elites in the Christian right. Um, And because of that, one of the things that we've been watching is how they speak to their constituents on these particular issues. So in the run up to Obergefell, we have research that shows their emails that they sent out to constituents were all about same sex marriage and the the concern that they had about same sex marriage. The minute they lost Obergefell, the minute that decision came down, turned down, they turned down the dial on that and their emails, they almost now don't mention same-sex marriage at all. And instead they talk about religious liberty. And because once you are the oppressed, then you need to talk about liberty and how you're going to now be oppressed. But the the other issue that where the dial has been turned up over time is around trans, transgender concerns and transgender rights. And they see this as the kind of new, if you will, um, uh, sexuality issue that is going to play well with suburban soccer moms. Um, so they will continue to, uh, to push on on that particular issue. Um, I, I think they know they've lost on same sex marriage. They've lost in terms of the generational gap on same sex mm-hmm. marriage. Um, so I don't think they'll push on that as much um, uh, in the in the coming few years. Okay, good. Gosh, lots to think about. Well, we've reached the end of our our time, so I guess if we if we draw it together, just just a couple of things maybe. Um, first of all, the the the, the timing of your twenty twenty four um publication. Angie seems uh, pertinent in the extreme, so we will very much look forward to that. And hopefully you'll come back and chat to us when that's out and and, and we can um, go through it. And just finally, uh, something that we ask all of our um, guests is, have you uh, a a recommendation of of any sort in relation to what we've talked about today? A a book, a podcast, an author, anything you'd like to share? Um, Okay, so uh, if you want to think about the the role in schools and in particular their their, uh, politics around school boards, uh, go and watch the movie called Revisionaries or have a look at the moment at what uh, the Texas State School Board is doing on uh, trying to stop books around climate change, getting into classroom. In terms of academic books, uh, Ann Nelson's book on the Shadow Network is really interesting. That looks at the Council on National Policy. Um, uh, there's some good, good old classics um, by Williams called God's Own Party or Faith in the Halls of Power mm-hmm. by, by Lindsay. Uh, Sarah Posner has a book out called God's Prophets. 
Um, there's some great uh, books there about the, the history of, uh, of the Christian right and the relationships with the Republican Party. Well, that's absolutely fantastic. I'm glad I asked. So thank you so much. If we draw our recording to a close then and thank our guest most sincerely for, for fitting us into your busy schedule. And please do come back and talk to us in 2024 when your book is out. Thank you so much, Professor Angie Wilson. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks very much indeed.